0: everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. We are continuing our interviews with Joel Bolivian on the top Christian ethics questions. Joel is a High Point Church attender and a Philosophy PhD student at UW-Madison. This week, Nick Gibson, our Lead Pastor, and Jill Reese Nick's Content and Ministry Coordinator, will continue the talk with Joel about the question, How Demanding Are Jesus's Teachings About Wealth and Giving?, if you missed part one of this talk, please listen to episode 200 on the podcast. If you have any questions from listening to this episode, or if there are any apologetics questions that you want us to talk about with Joel, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Jill Reese. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson and Joel. He is back. We're still plugging through our Christian ethics questions that he's come up with. There's three questions we're going over. Uh, The first one, which was the last episode, was on moral relativism. And then this question, um, we've been talking about poverty and affluence and we got interrupted in our last conversation. So we're gonna continue that conversation right now on the question of how demanding are Jesus's teachings about wealth and giving? So we're gonna, we talked about in the last episode, or in just earlier, you're, you're jumping in, in the middle here, but we talked about the first radical view and the second radical view. And so we're going to jump into the, some guiding questions for Christians about giving and generosity.
2: I think it's probably best if Joel summarizes the first, what do you call the first and second radical? The, like the, basically the two opposite poles of this question. Mm -hmm. What do we owe in generosity towards our fellow man as Christians?
3: Well, it's really good to be back again. Yeah. Just as a quick recap, we talked about two radical views that sort of fall on either end of the spectrum when it comes to the question, what do we owe as Nick put it to our fellow human beings uh, from a Christian point of view. And the first radical view is associated with the philosopher Peter Singer. And he says that we have a moral responsibility to sacrifice the vast majority of our wealth surplus to aid those living in extreme poverty. So anything that's not essential for, you know, say food, health care, your basic necessities, wherever you happen to live, that should be going. Every bit of it should be going to humanitarian organizations that alleviate poverty. So it's very demanding. The second view kind of goes to the complete opposite end of the spectrum. It's a view called ethical libertarianism, and it's defended by a philosopher named Jan Narvison. And the idea is that we only have obligations to not harm other people. These are called negative duties. So I ought not to do anything that harms you or that infringes upon your rights, but I have no positive obligation to help you out unless I've caused your, your situation. And so as a result, a lot of ethical libertarians think that we have very little responsibility to those living in poverty, especially those in distant countries living in poverty because we're not responsible for their situation. So those broadly are the two views that we talked about. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Joel, did you mean to say that Singer believes that all of our superfluous income should go to humanitarian organizations or do you, does he believe that it should just go to other people in need or does he explicitly say it should be going to nonprofit national and international organizations, that that is the best way to distribute those, that those goods.
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. Peter Singer is pretty clear about where he thinks our wealth donations should be going. They should be, they should be directed towards causes which are, treating the most serious needs. That's his earliest work, right? So who's on the brink of starvation? That's where you should send your money. In um, more recent work, say, look at his book, The Life You Can Save, and another book he wrote called the, um, the Most Good You Can Do. He thinks that we should be really reflective on where we give, find charities that are really e- efficient and effective. They need not be alleviating poverty. They might be providing healthcare, say the Against Malaria Foundation, which isn't necessarily saving lives, although that does happen. Um, but so yeah, more recently, he thinks you should just give to, to charities that are helping improve people's conditions oh. where people are living in you know pretty oh. dire situations, but so long as it's very effective. So he's, his view is st- still somewhat oriented around rescuing those who are the worst off. Um, So you shouldn't be like just giving your money out to your wealthy neighbors who maybe are in a financial rough spot for the time being. No, you should send it to those who are in the the worst situations. Okay. All
1: right. Thanks, Joel. Um, So let's move on to guiding questions for Christians and distinguishing between two questions of first, how much of my wealth should I sacrifice versus uh, where should my sacrifice go? Do
3: you want to frame that a
1: little bit for us?
3: Absolutely. So I think that both of the views we talked about are mistaken. I don't think that um, either of them fully captures or accurately captures the extent of our moral obligations. Singer's view is too extreme. Jan Narvison's view is not extreme enough. And so now we're left thinking, does Christianity tell us anything about how stringent our obligations are? So let's distinguish between two questions that arise here. There's this question how much should I sacrifice versus this question, where should my sacrifice go? So this is the difference between asking about the demandingness of Christian altruism versus asking about the targets or the recipients of Christian altruism. And I really want to focus on that first question. Um, How demanding is the Christian ethic when it comes to sacrifice and to altruism? Is it permissible for a Christian to keep substantial amounts of wealth and to live luxuriously? notice that the question is not can Christians create wealth or make wealth or have jobs where they're earning a lot of wealth. Rather, the issue is about keeping it and using it for luxuries. So it might turn out that faithful stewardship involves faithful productivity. If I really care about people, I'm going to be productive so that I can attend to them more effectively and Mm -hmm. can sustain my giving. Um. So yeah, my diligence in creating wealth can be the means by which I aid more people. So the key question here is not about wealth creation, nor is the question, is it ever permissible for Christians to keep wealth and to enjoy luxuries? I think it's kind of undeniable that there will be situations, however rare, where that is morally permissible. But the real question is about the ordinary American Christian who is not faced with unusual circumstances or beset by financial hardships. And and for me, the question is, are they permitted to keep substantial amounts of wealth and to live luxuriously? As a sneak peek, like my view is that no, that the teachings of Christ do not permit us to keep substantial amounts of wealth. So we may not have to give as radically as Singer encourages us, um, but we have to give perhaps a lot more than we might think. And the reason Singer is, I think, mistaken from a Christian point of view is that Jesus enjoyed certain kinds of luxuries, however minimal. And remember, Singer's view is that you, you can't keep any luxuries when you could easily rescue people's lives. But Jesus does enjoy certain luxuries. I think you see that in his life when he's enjoying the company of others, he's attending parties, and it's all part of his kingdom building, but it's, it's luxury nonetheless, Um, moreover, the reason I think Singer's view is wrong from a Christian point of view is that to obey the love command, the command to love my neighbor as myself, um, I need to invest luxuries into people that are close to me. I mean, my family, my friends, my community, that's my neighbor, just as much as the person across the sea. And to really love say my family, my children, my spouse, my parents, well, I'm going to have to invest a little extra, a little surplus into them, right? I mean, Just buying ordinary gifts for my kids, those are luxuries, but those luxuries are a way of manifesting love, which I am commanded to do. So I think that Jesus's ethic is pretty radical. And one way of kind of figuring out how how radical and seeing more about the Christian ethic is to turn to Jesus's teachings, and in particular, the story of the good Samaritan. Um, But I just want to pause and see if you have any thoughts about that.
1: I have some, I have some questions. Are you distinguishing? So you said um, Jesus' love commands and you were talking about his commands to love. Um, are those, are the ones that you're thinking of specific to generosity? I mean, obviously like generosity is loving, but are there specific commands about giving that you're thinking of and not just loving your neighbor?
3: Yeah, that's, Yeah, that's a really good question. I am thinking about the love command, say, in Mark 12, where Jesus says you know, that the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So I think that just looking at that and reflecting on this and what it meant to a first century Jew like Jesus, I think we can come away with pretty stringent obligations to um, aid those who are needy even at cost to ourselves, cost to our luxuries. But there are other passages for sure that I think encourage us, um, in fact, command us to live more modestly, more simply when it comes to our luxuries. Um, And I touch on some of these, I can touch on some of these a bit later, but just as a preview, um, Luke says something in in Luke 12, 31 through 34, well, not Luke, but Jesus uh, through Luke, and, um, he's, you know, he talks about selling your possessions, giving to the poor, as well as in Matthew six nineteen in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And in the Greek, he actually says, do not heap up. It's, just imagine this like pile of straw that you're just adding more and more straw to. Jesus says, do not heap up in that way, treasures on earth. Um, and maybe we can talk about those um, further below. But I, yeah, I think the real, the real pivotal command has to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Nick, do you have thoughts pastorally on what we've covered so far?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of a, a lot of them. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's important to recognize that most Christians, or many Christians, maybe I should say, just haven't really grappled with the most extreme sets of commands about the acquisition and accumulation mm-hmm. and use of wealth that sound the most i don't know outlandish, the most extreme, maybe um I think people become comfortable that way because there's a lot of discussion of wealth in the bible that seems to demonstrate a comfort with wealth that people can use their wealth for what they want that it's okay to be wealthy that there's a number of heroes in the bible that are quite wealthy and they have only maintained that wealth by keeping it such that when certain situations happen they're wealthy right and so there's even in the new testament that's true and some of the teachings of Jesus, even a few pages from each other, seem sort of modestly contradictory in a way. They're not contradictions, but they, so, for example, when Jesus goes to uh, Zacchaeus' house, who's very wealthy, it says um, when he comes to Jesus, he realizes there's a, there's an ethical call upon his wealth, and so he says uh, to Jesus, "Right here now, I give away half of all my wealth." Right, which is he's still going to be really wealthy. Right. And Jesus says, um, this day, um, salvation has come to this house. This man too is the son of Abraham. And Zacchaeus also promises to pay back, um, with some multiplication, anybody who he's cheated, but he, he uses the locution if I've cheated anyone.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it, it's not obvious that he had to have done so under Roman law or anything like that. So some people have said, well, you know, all of Zacchaeus you know, wealth is cheating people and, but that's really not the context of, the passage in luke but then right after that i mean like within a couple pages the rich young ruler comes to jesus jesus says to sell everything that you have and to come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven and he goes away sad and doesn't do it and so and jesus doesn't give him a second offer and so it and, and then for for example there's another place i think also in luke's gospel where there's a man who's quite rich and he has like the harvest of a lifetime And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tear down the barns that I have and I'm going to build bigger ones and fill them with all this. And then, you know, I'll never have to work again the rest of my life. Right. It says like, you know, take ease and comfort and whatever. Right. And then God says, you fool this night, your soul will be required of you. And then what will happen all your wealth? Right. And The thing that's interesting about that is this guy was already wealthy. He already had barns, which are literally places you heap up wealth for yourself. I mean, that's literally what a barn is. It's where you store your excesses and stuff you're going to need for the next season and for the future. It's a place, it's a, it's your bank, right? In agrarian culture. And this guy had barns. He had a place where he could heap stuff up, so to speak, right? But then he said, yeah, but I'm going to, I've got more than I can even put in these barns. So, so his barns were built presumably to keep what he, at least what he would need for the future and plus some more. And now he could fill these and then have more left over. And what he decides is he's going to build bigger barns, which is pretty expensive to do. Right. And so in this case, this really angers God that like he's given him well, he's made him wealthy. He's given him everything he needs for the relative future. Right. And so what the guy does is he decides to keep everything and to cease being highly productive. And the combination of those two seem to infuriate God sufficiently that he judges the guy with death, right? Right. And so, like, as you work through passage after passage after passage in the New Testament, you can see how different Christians would come to different views about exactly how much money we're obligated to give and whether or not this can be boiled down to and reduced to simple philosophical principles by which we could understand a certain percentage or or a certain, like, Level of living or whether or not you can get leather seats in your car or electric windows or, you know, all those kinds of questions. And my gut is what God has done in the scriptures is given us a bunch of different passages to grapple with, with Mm -hmm. a bunch of different kind of structural principles built into them that are meant to affect us and convict us and move us. Because at the same time, what you also see in the scriptures is God giving sort of certain ethical demands where he says, you're going to give, for example, the tithe, you're going to give 10% of your wealth. Period, full stop. And then in other places, he's like, you need to decide how much you're going to give and give it, like in Mm 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And so there's layers to this. There's like a minimum, you dare not do less than. And then there's a realm of generosity where you get a choice. And then Jesus says that like your resurrection, the quality of your resurrection is partly based on some of these choices, but he doesn't get too Mm -hmm. specific about that. And then he's also clear that there's a certain amount of miserliness that he would temporarily judge people for and destroy them. Right. And all these are kind of worked and woven together within this larger tapestry. And so this passage that Joel's going to bring up here, the the parable of the Good Samaritan, is Mm -hmm. one of them. And it's one of the more extreme ones. But if your ethic only takes in the comforting ones and not the extreme ones, then then as a Christian, you won't grapple with the questions of wealth sufficiently. Mm-hmm. i don't think so i mean obviously there's a whole lot more i would want to say on that but that's just a kind of a mm-hmm.
3: yeah yeah i think that's mm-hmm. really good and i just kind of want to add something to that i mean I, i'm looking at the passage in luke 12 about the building of the barns and i mean it might be that storing up so we need to distinguish between storing up wealth or goods for the sake of surviving through the year versus mm-hmm. storing up wealth that's going to like last for many, many years. That's quite in excess. And so, um, yeah, I think people shouldn't come away from this story thinking that this guy already had massive amounts of wealth saved up and he's adding more. And that's the problem is that he's adding way, way more wealth accumulation and and heaping up far more wealth. I think the, I don't know if that's what the peril is getting at. And I'm not suggesting you were saying that, Nick, but but I, I think there is a temptation to come to these passages and yeah, try to make them fit. Um, a certain ethic that leaves our lives intact and that leaves our consumption and our spending intact. And I'm guilty of it uh, as well. So I think you're totally right to encourage us to look at the full sweep of scripture here. And just the Zacchaeus story is really interesting as well. I mean, what scholarship is telling us about wealth in the ancient world is that there, there was next to no middle class in the ancient world. So if you're a first century Jew, um, you're either going to be very poor, or you're going to be quite wealthy, and the vast majority of people are quite poor. Um, and so, it's what's interesting too is if, if you look at the work of say John Dominic Crossan, he he points out that a lot of the wealthy people in first century Palestine acquired their wealth through exploitation. And so this rich young ruler that comes to Jesus, he very well could be guilty of having exploited a lot of workers. So he might have dirty money, right? And so, you know, Jesus's command to him could could be, just a could here, could be a command to relinquish money that was acquired in an unjust way. If you look at Zacchaeus, maybe Zacchaeus being a faithful, devout Jew was more concerned about how he was acquiring his wealth. Uh, And that's why he can say, if I have harmed anyone, then I'll give it back. So just an interesting thing to point out about what's going on there.
2: Yeah. I mean, aside from the fact that I probably couldn't agree on the color of human excrement in a conversation with John Dominic Crossan and and can't don't trust that guy as far as I could throw him. Um, So in the, so I I think what you're saying is true in terms of context. Like for example, all of Luke 12 is about wealth and it talks about different forms of wealth and different kinds of greed so for example there's within this is a story about two brothers whose parents have died and now there's an inheritance and they're fighting over the inheritance and they ask jesus to divide the inheritance and jesus refuses to do it and that's one of the examples of him saying be on your guard for all kinds of greed so greed is more than just like the kind of greed and the kind of contentment and wealth that jesus is talking about is more than just what percentage should we get or how much luxury can we have now that that is an important question in the one we're, we're we're focusing on here, but the idea of how we relate to money and the fact that scripture doesn't say you shouldn't have anything more than like potatoes, but it, it does say the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Yeah. And it also says right after that in first Timothy, that if we have food and clothing we should content ourselves with that now the context literally there refers to um, a person in ministry and their how easy it is in ministry to to love wealth and then want to get more wealth than you should from your flock and so on but there's still this emphasis that like at least within Timothy's context that there's a you have to figure out where contentment should be. Mm-hmm. And it's actually at a pretty low economic level, according to the Apostle Paul, who has he says has been in plenty and in want. Right. But I, I do want to, let me go back to the the rich man in Luke twelve though. I do think it's important to observe in the first line of the parable that the ground of a certain rich man produced a crop. Yeah. So the mm-hmm. immediate context sure. of this parable is that we're starting out with a guy who is already rich,
3: mm-hmm. and so.
2: So I think it's important to recognize that his barns were probably bigger than the average peasants who could put in just enough seed corn for the next year. This is a guy who was already rich. Now, that doesn't mean that this is the only normative principle right. in this parable. Th- mm-hmm. This is just one statement about that. So I would agree with, with Joel that, like, um, that th- th- like, I wouldn't use this parable to say, look, you can have a big 401k you can have a couple million dollars, just don't have, you know, 12 like that. That's not, that's not all there is to say. I think there is something to say that like, if you come up with a new product and you make $550 million and you just go, I'm done. I did it. I think that's dangerous in two senses. One is you're storing up an obscene amount of wealth. Right. And secondly, you're rejecting your God given calling to continued productivity. Right? This guy should be producing more continually, and other people should be benefiting from his economic production. And now he's like, nope, I'm just going to take it easy. I'm just going to retire early.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And God's, you know, God's condemnation of this man I think is both related to his refusal to be productive and his um, heaping up of wealth right? right? that is wrong. So I think God lays out these parameters where like if you're outside these parameters, man, like you are way out there. Like you are way within the realm of damnable greed and like having no generosity or heaping up very large amounts of wealth, right? But then Jesus also wants to say, look, you don't need any hardly anything to live. Like if you really have faith, like the sparrows fly around and eat food off the ground, you can be content with food and clothing. Like what would happen And I think this is very relevant because I think a lot of Christians don't do what they know is right or what God is calling them to do or what would do real good because they're afraid what's going to happen to them economically. They're not going to have a good retirement. They're not going to have what they want. They're not going to have the comforts that they want. And they're afraid that, you know, well what if I get reduced to living in an apartment with an older used car and like maybe I can't work and make that much money. And the answer is who cares for a Christian who cares and very few Christians think that way. And I think that's the, one of the critical things that those teachings, the teachings about sparrows and moths eating and destroying what we try to heap up on this earth. Now what Joel's getting at here with the parable of the Good Samaritan is the relatable issue. To what extent are you your immediate brother's keeper and in what relationships of the concentric circles of direct relationship is that relevant? And I think those questions To what extent are you your brother's keeper? The interrelationship of human beings to each other in God's sight is also a critical notion in the question of wealth. So it's a question of love, right?
1: Yeah. It's the question of love. And so there's a question of love and the question of who are you loving? Like what is loving in this, in, in generosity and who is our neighbor? I think that the, in the parable, it actually, that question comes up, but who is my neighbor? (laughs) And it's asked in a sort of a self-justifying way, but that is a question in this conversation. So Joel, could you frame the Good Samaritan ethics for us?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, first of all, a Good Samaritan ethic is grounded in Jesus's love command uh, to love your neighbor as yourself. And as you were saying, this parable of the Good Samaritan it tells us a bit about who we're supposed to be loving, mm-hmm. right? And to give you some context for this, I mean, in the in the ancient world amongst the Jews, there is debate about who one's neighbor was. If you look at Leviticus 19, the love command comes up in Leviticus 19. The, the Jews were commanded to love their neighbors as themselves. In context, it really looks like they're talking about their covenant, their fellow covenant partners, fellow Jews, people who have chosen to live in faithfulness to the Torah. Now, a little later on in Leviticus 19, it says something also about loving the alien amongst you. But a lot of rabbis who were interpreting the Torah argued that the aliens living amongst you weren't just any foreigners in your midst. It was foreigners who were trying to be Torah observers. Again, so neighborly love for the vast majority of Jewish thinkers in Jesus's time had to do with attending to the needs of people who were trying to be practicing Jews, whether they were born into the tradition or whether they were converts. But I think the the parable of the good Samaritan addresses that like dead on. So in the parable, the, the neighbor of the parable is the Samaritan. And, you know, there's a, a really difficult history between the Jews and the Samaritans and um, you know a lot of jews thought of samaritans as as impure as unfaithful as traitors to their history and it it's the samaritan in the story who acts in a neighborly way and the samaritan acts in a neighborly way in at least two senses the samaritan helps out the jewish person who is in need and notice that he does so irrespective of his Covenant partnership with the Jew. I mean, they're not. They're not. They're not cut from the same cloth in any sense that would have appealed to ancient Jews. Um, so I think that there are a few ethical takeaways from the Good Samaritan story. I, I think that the kind of principles we can extract involve two things: the people we're supposed to be helping are those who are needy. So I think Jesus gives us a needs-based ethic, and it's a capacity-based ethic as well. Insofar as you have the capacity to do something. You ought to help and we see that in the samaritan there was a need presented to the samaritan and the samaritan had the capacity to attend to it and it's that action of attending to those needs that jesus regards as neighborly love notice that there's no clause or condition saying that you should help on the condition that you've caused their plight the samaritan didn't Mm -hmm. cause the jews plight in the story there's no condition or clause saying that you should help on the condition that you're part that the the person in need is part of your ethnic or religious background So again, this contrasts with a common ancient Jewish understanding of the love command found in Leviticus 19. Um, So there's this nice quote from a theologian and New Testament scholar, Ben Witherington, in his massive book, New Testament Theology and Ethics. He says, divine mercy does not ask the worth of the recipient. It only sees the need. The story reminds us of the ethical agendas of Jesus to bring about reconciliation between even hated enemies. By implication, Jesus disagrees with the definition of neighbor as understood by some of um, his early Jewish contemporaries, namely that one's neighbor was a compatriot or someone within one's covenant community. And so Witherington says, the implication is that one should act like a neighbor to all persons, regardless of their condition or ethnicity, and that this sort of action is the true way to fulfill the commandment to love one's neighbor as oneself. So a good Samaritan Mm -hmm. ethic asks us or leads us to ask two questions are there serious needs in the world? And second, am I capable financially or otherwise of attending to those needs? That is what it is to act neighborly toward another human being. To be sure, you can't attend to every need, but you can attend to some. And as Nick has been saying, there is probably a lot of liberty to pick between various causes, to even pick how much wealth you're going to give. What there is not liberty to do is nothing. And there is not liberty to do very little. I would argue. And that's because to love implies concern, deep concern for the well-being of another. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's just a bit about the Good Samaritan story. And I think it addresses ethical libertarians. It doesn't matter if you haven't harmed someone, you still have to attend to their needs insofar as you have the capacity to do so. Um, Yeah. Any thoughts about that before we get into like the demandingness question more specifically? Mm -hmm.
1: Nick do you have any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I I, th- I think that one I think that there are some Christians that really do like certain parts of libertarian thinking as a political ideology within the United States. And I think that in some cases libertarianism is a proper Christian option within certain political questions. So when we reject cuz I agree with with Joel that you cannot hold to what scripture teaches and be libertarian in your understanding of your obligation to others. Right. However, um, a Christian I think is, can take a libertarian view in relationship to generosity. When the question is asked, should a government over people presume to be the, the collector and distributor of charitable goods and services? At that point, I think a Christian can say they believe that the government is one of the most inefficient, ineffective. It is the wrong entity. It breaks the relationship between giver and receiver and therefore the relationship of love and empathy. It is corrupted by politics, blah, blah, blah. You, you can go on and on and on. And so I, th- I think that, I don't know if Joel would agree with the statement I'm going to make right now, but I, I think that um, libertarian, uh, there are li- way, there are questions that can be solved with libertarian logic. But biblically speaking, the natural and spiritual relationship of brotherhood and sisterhood, and therefore obligation in generosity between human beings that touch each other in life. Um, God has revealed that we have a relationship between them. And therefore we can't say, unless I've caused harm, right? Like there are deeper strands. It's kind of like the abortion argument where, um, I remember watching in our, a uh, debate between Peter Kreeft and a, a pro-abortion debater. And the debater said, why should a woman be forced to provide life support to another human being for nine months? You would never do that in a hospital. You wouldn't You wouldn't take somebody who was injured in an accident and then put another person, healthy person, in a hospital bed next to them and force them to stay in the hospital bed for nine months in order to support the life of another human being. Why would you do that with a woman who has an unwanted pregnancy. And grief's response was, he's like, well, let's start with that being a really strange way to speak about motherhood. <laughs> yeah. Right? Which I think really kind of gets at the heart of it. Like, you kind of right. like, okay, whether or not you can make that kind of libertarian argument what if a completely different metaphysical relationship exists that you don't want to acknowledge that like the minute a woman becomes pregnant, she's not just a woman with another body inside of her. She is a mother, which means she has an inherent moral relationship to the particular body of the other human being inside of her. I E she is that creature's mother. And because she's a mother, she has the responsibilities of a mother. And similarly, There is a divine brotherhood or sisterhood Mm -hmm. to mankind that Jesus demands because of our creation under God, our relationship to each other, and and the love command and many other things. And so therefore, Mm -hmm. you can't just say, well, what what do we have to do with one another? And the answer is, according to Jesus, so much, Mm -hmm. so much, even with your enemies. Mm -hmm. And so if you accept that revealed teaching in the area of generosity, you can't resort to alleviating yourself from responsibility by the use of libertarian thinking. Even if libertarianism is your political philosophy, libertarianism should not be your ethical and spiritual philosophy. And you can hold one without the other. You can be a a political libertarian and not a theological one.
3: Right. And I think Christians shouldn't be a theological one. It's arguable whether or not they should be a political one. Right, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so political libertarians versus ethical libertarians versus theological libertarians, and I agree completely. Scripture— does not support ethical libertarianism in the least bit um, at least not a careful reading of scripture yeah and it's an open question whether there's anything in scripture that speaks to political libertarianism i'm I'm skeptical of just revealing my cards there um but I yeah it's it's a re- relatively open question
2: right I think one of the ways this gets saucy and we don't have to pursue this because I, I think joel wanted to go a different way with this but once a Christian so here here's what happens pastorally especially if you get like younger people who don't have kids and 401ks and savings for college and stuff like that yet. And they're just dealing with the fact that they like, they just got a job out of college and they're trying to decide how much of the money is God's right. And you say, okay, listen, you have a moral responsibility to mankind, to your neighbor, to people other than yourself. And then their, their question is like, is there any limiting principle to that? Hmm. Or am I obligated to the welfare of literally all mankind because, like, I don't have as much money as Ebenezer Scrooge. That, like, when he wakes up, I mean, he doesn't even heal all of England. Like, what, like, at what point, at what point is, and so in, in, for example, Catholic social thought, there's been this argument of subsidiarity and the concentric circles of responsibility that you are more socially responsible to your wife than you are to a Tibetan man, you know, like, herdsman's wife. Because, of, because the dynamics of social relationship and the subsidiarity, that is, the, the relationships of the more local institutions in which the fabric of humanity flourishes, are your primary responsibilities. And as it moves out, you're less responsible to more distal or more remote human concerns. However, even within Catholic, Catholic social teaching, if, what that would mean is, like, let's say you had $50 to be generous with you might spend 25 of it on the people closest to you, but you'd still spend the other 25 of it on people less close to you. You, 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 you kind of, it would, it would like, it'd be like drawing like a parabolic line that things would slowly peter out as you got further away from you. Right. So it wouldn't mean you'd have no interest in a starving child in Haiti.
3: Right.
2: But you would have, you might have more interest in a kid that wasn't reading well in your city because the relationships of human flourishing that you're per- personally participating in, you have to be, you have to participate in, in more than just giving them checks and the, the, the wovenness of those relationships is part of your social obligations. Does that make sense? So for example, there's a place where do good to everyone, but especially those mm-hmm. in the family of believers. Like for example, if you were dest- one of you two were destitute in the church, I was a part of and our believers, I believe I have more responsibility to you than maybe somebody down the road that was in need. But that doesn't mean I have no responsibility to the person down the road that's in need. That's exactly right. Does that make sense? So so one of the I think one of the questions people get really interested in is, okay, Nick, if I'm going to be profoundly generous, are there any lim- limiting principles either in how much I would give or am I responsible for the whole world? Or are there any directing principles in who's more important than who and how do I apportion this giving? And I think those are very honest questions mm-hmm. that we have to give really good answers to. Otherwise, what, what we're saying is you should heal the whole world with your limited wealth. F- fix the unlimited problem with your limited wealth. And I think what people do often do in that situation is they throw up their hands and they say, well, I, this is unreasonable and it can't be
3: right. Right. And I think that's it is unreasonable. And I think part of what makes it unreasonable is you can't do it. And there's a principle in... Uh, ethics that a lot of people subscribe to that if you're unable, literally unable to do an action, then you couldn't be obligated to do that action. And so sometimes we frame these discussions in terms of alleviating global poverty or alleviating uh, problems in healthcare. And so we'll say you or we, the church have an obligation to alleviate global poverty. And I think that that creates the burden that you're talking about precisely because we think how, how could we possibly alleviate global poverty? So maybe that's the wrong way of framing it. I mean, we, we can't alleviate global poverty. I can't, you can't. So we're not obligated to alleviate global poverty, but we can frame it in a different way, in a way that we you know, describe something we can do in which perhaps takes some of that psychological burden away. We are obligated to play our part in healing the world. We are obligated to do something. And Yeah, I can totally sympathize with people who feel overwhelmed by all the needs in the world. I've felt that myself. But um, yeah, try to frame the obligation in terms of making a contribution that is going to change a few lives, a handful of lives, maybe a few dozen lives. That's your responsibility. That's your obligation. And it's worthwhile because those lives matter.
2: Yeah, let let me add this. Let me say this from a slightly different perspective because... It depends on what you mean by heal the world, right? Um, so from a post-millennial perspective where like through Christ's reign, things will get better, better, better until his return. Some Christians believe that the world really will get better and better and better. And so it's our job to heal the world before the return of Christ. Others, others believe that the, the world is not going to be healed. That in fact, things may actually get worse and worse before the, Jesus returns when everything's really in the toilet. Right. And that's how they read, for example, the the book of Revelation. But either way, whether you take that sort of more post-millennial approach or more Anabaptist approach where we can only be spice and preservant, we can make the world go less ill than it would have otherwise. That's all we can ever do. Either way, it doesn't change these commands whether you think the world isn't going to be ultimately totally healed until the return of Jesus, or whether you, you believe as the church you are a sign to the world and you serve it so that it goes less badly than it otherwise would. That's still noble. Fighting the long defeat and making things less bad than they otherwise would have been is a deeply and profoundly noble action that I think Christians need to embrace with all their hearts. And It's one of the reasons why I love Tolkien so much, but it's it's, it's something that you have to like, Like you you see this like in parenting, like even if one of your kids, you know, is going to be like, just not going to do well. You make them do as, as less bad as is possible. And that's a really noble pursuit. And so we're not going to succeed in saving every child. Not everyone is going to be redeemed in the, in the most physical health based possible sense. That's not going to happen, but Jesus will still hold us accountable for how much less bad we could have made things and whether or not we chose to. Yeah. Does that make sense? Because that's what he's doing. He's not going to succeed in saving everyone unless you're a universalist, but he is working to make it the least bad. He's doing all, all that he can quotes around can obviously mm-hmm. providentially to make it the, judge, the day of judgment as least bad as possible. So I, I think it's important to remember that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good.
1: So we've been talking around this demandedness, demanding this question, But um, Joel, is there more that you want to say about the Christian ethic and um, how demanding Christ's teachings are on wealth and generosity?
3: Yeah, earlier I said that I think the Christian ethic is quite demanding, that Mm -hmm. the ordinary American who is not financially strapped has pretty stringent responsibilities to use their wealth for the sake of helping the needy. And again, that, that leaves open the question, where should I be giving? To whom should I be giving? I think Nick is right. There are concentric circles of obligations. With without implying that those on the fringe of the concentric circles shouldn't be receiving anything, they definitely should be receiving a lot. And I think that there are two simple arguments for thinking that we have pretty stringent obligations as Christians mm-hmm. to relinquish wealth for the sake of the needy. And the first one is just a kind of simple biblical argument. And of course, there are nuances here that need to be teased out. So I'll just throw these out there for listeners to explore on their own. But in Luke 12:33, Jesus says, Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make for yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Um, you might think well he's just saying give some and sell some of your possessions that's definitely true he's definitely not encouraging you to sell everything not even the you know the inner core of jesus followers sold everything they always had enough to sustain their own needs right they didn't make themselves the the least well-off by their giving nonetheless we look when we look at how the earliest christians lived they were incredibly generous and one reason is that to think, you know, one explanation for why they're incredibly generous is that they're following these teachings. They're not trying to heap up wealth. Uh, Jesus says, don't heap up wealth. They're trying to attend to the poor and the needy. So I'll leave those sort of biblical arguments there for people to reflect on. Here's a simple-ish theological argument for thinking that we have rather stringent responsibilities to use our wealth, a lot of it for the poor. And it starts with two things, the command to manifest agape style love and the vocation we have as image bearers and bringers of new creation. So I think that to succeed in agape style, cross-bearing people-centered love as defined and lived out by Jesus, and to succeed in my vocation as a herald and bringer of new creation, I cannot heap up wealth and luxuries that could easily rescue lives and which could easily promote wholeness in the world. To do so would be to treat my wealth and my luxuries as more valuable than the lives and wholeness of image bearers in extreme need. Notice here that the claim is not that keeping luxuries in the face of serious needs implies that I actually believe that my luxuries are more valuable than the lives of those I could aid. Rather, by doing so, by keeping massive amounts of wealth, I act as if that is the case. I act as if my wealth is more valuable than the The people who who are in need the way i treat my wealth is out of alignment with the actual value of luxurious living especially when so much is at stake so i ought not treat something as more valuable than something else if in fact it is not more valuable just as an illustration i mean imagine that a father who has a son is spending a lot of his time on the golf course and if you ask this father do you love your son they would say for sure i I think my son is incredibly valuable Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they're not spending much time with their son and their son is longing for it. Their their wholeness is dependent on the attention Uh and love of their father. The, The father might be sincere. They might actually really think my son is incredibly valuable, far more valuable than my golfing. It's just that the way they're living doesn't communicate what they actually believe. The way they're living expresses higher value for golfing than higher value for time with one's son. And that's a kind of it's it's a way of living that's out of sync and out of alignment with what's actually valuable. So our lives should express in how we live and how we spend our time and our money should express commitment to the things that are most valuable. And luxuries are not most valuable. Image bearers who are in need are most valuable. And then just a second bit here. Oh, sorry. Go for it.
1: So hearing you talk th- right now about that, this sounds like Peter Singer's argument to me. <laughs>
3: Yeah, this is such, such a good connection to make. I think that Peter Singer would agree that the, the life of a human is always more valuable than the luxury I possess. So yes, there is that in common. I would want to qualify what I'm saying in the following way. If I'm loving the people in my life properly, that requires that I invest some amount of luxury into their lives. Right. Singer doesn't, doesn't think that concentric circles of moral right. responsibility exist.
1: Okay. But I so think this the Christian is, ethic does. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. That makes sense to me.
3: Yeah. And not, not only that, but like, look, God loves like us. He loves the wealthy Americans who have plenty of surplus wealth to donate. He loves middle-class Americans who have, you know, less, but still enough to donate. He loves them. And their shalom may depend in part on whether they're also investing into their own well-being. Their mental well-being, um, just recreation. So, we shouldn't live lavish lives, but we have a lavish God who loves us, and so that may permit that, in, in in sort of honor of God's love for us, that we enjoy some amount of luxury, even for ourselves, without going overboard. Does that make sense, Joel? Let me let me um,
2: fiddle with this with you for a second. Um, So you guys might hear the fire alarm again. My daughter, Rachel is aggressive in everything she does. And apparently that includes, um, cooking asparagus in the kitchen. Um, so a couple things, um, there are places in the Bible that seem to affirm wealth, even in a society in which wealth disparities are very large mm-hmm. such that it appears, it, it appears as though God is not all that interested in wealth differentials, even when wealthy people are wealthy and act wealthy. So um, obviously there's lots of examples in the early parts of the old Testament of God, making people fabulously wealthy like Abraham and Jacob and people like that. Right. There's also examples of people like David, who God says to him, I gave you all these things. I made you King. I gave you multiple wives, like things that we would think of are immoral. Like, Multiple women, for example. Yeah. And he says to David, if that wouldn't have been enough, I would have given you even more. Right? So then why did you sin against me? Right? Because David apparently what, got to the point where he wasn't really thankful for all that he had. And, he, and it didn't hold him. In First or Second Thessalonians, it says that Paul, God gives us everything for our enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Right? In, in, in a similar context where he, Paul also says, um, tell the rich not to be proud or to put their hope in their wealth. But he but he also seems to say, so this is I'm sorry, this is first Timothy
1: mm-hmm.
2: six, seventeen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Right? Which now it's important to read if you know if you've never read First Timothy chapter six and you're listening to this, you should, because it it's also the chapter that talks about how terrible a thing it is to lo- be a lover of money and how destructive that can be and how it pierces you with many evils and so on. But one, one of the things I, I think is that some of the things I think we assume kind of in the Peter Singer kind of logic, I actually don't find in scripture. For example, I don't find a distributive, a major distributive ethic in scripture with God speaking. Um, also, also I, like, can you think of any example in the new Testament of the church giving to non-believers. Now, I can think of teachings that allow, make it reasonable that we might help non-believers. I can think of the idea that um, people should care about their destitute neighbors. That's part of Jesus' love command. But in the book of Acts or any of the epistles or anywhere we're giving is talked about, I don't know of any situation in which the church does or Paul collects for, or there's any action in which Money is collected and distributed for non-believers. Um, and, but yet there is a very active, very strong ministry to believers. So in Acts 6, it's all, all of the widows, whether Hellenistic or Jewish, are taken care of. Everybody shares their goods with each other within the church. And even when you get to the point of Pliny the Younger, an, a non-Christian figure um, He says, all of their poor are taken care of. Now, in that context, um, it says, the Christians take care of all of their poor. And then the next line is, and ours as well. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Meaning that the early, meaning that we do know that the early Christians were helping the poor who weren't Christians. Yeah. By the second century, at least. But you don't see that as a major part of giving in the New Testament. It doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like. Like after the resurrection of Jesus, you have a church. A lot is said about charitable giving, and giving to non Christians is like virtually never mentioned. And I find that interesting, in terms of because and here's what I would take from that: not that you shouldn't give to non Christians, right? Because there is a verse that says, "Help everyone, but especially those in the family of believers," right? Mm-hmm. But it makes me wonder whether or not Jesus' assumption is that the that the brotherhood of faith of the body of Christ that that additional brother and sisterhood is a very strong concentric circle Mm -hmm. and is a net that should capture the majority of your charitable giving for at least three reasons. One, because they're dearer to you as believers than those merely connected to you in the brotherhood of mankind. Secondly, that it's part of the healing fabric of the, community of Christ and the body of Christ so that more is happening than just giving money. Right. And I had a third one that was brilliant that it slipped out of my memory. <laughs> right. Yeah. Good.
3: You know.
2: is, okay. oh, oh, the third is I think you can, you can look at the, you know the person and you can see the situation and mm-hmm. you can interact with what, what's going on so that you're not engaging in toxic charity and just like dumping money on something that isn't going to work, which is you know, what we're finding, you talked about this in other discussions, what we're finding in the, our empirical research about charity is, is that so much of charity not only does no good, but does a considerable amount of harm. Mm-hmm. And that's, and it, that's more true the more personally disconnected you are from the charitable donation itself, which is why I think people are supposed to take care of their own families first, because they can tell Bill, their alcoholic uncle, to quit freaking drinking in a way that a government bureaucrat just can't do, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. So, I mean, those are some of my, like, you know, because I'm, I don't get to spend most of my time doing philosophical work. I spend a lot more of my time doing like this biblical text work. And so like, I, you know, I'm thinking of this web of teaching throughout the new Testament and those are some of my
3: Mm -hmm. thoughts about that. Yeah. Yeah. Before I jump in, Jill, did you want to add anything to that?
1: Well, if you have something to add, do that. Because I was going to ask, what are some practical ways we can?
2: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, want, I want to be like before thoughts. Joel answers that I don't think that the, like the practice in the book of Acts like negates what Jesus says in the Gospels. I don't think that. I think you have to have a both-and approach mm-hmm. to the whole of Scripture. And all of these statements of Jesus that Joel is quoting have to be grappled with in the present as continuative teachings of the Lord. So I, I don't in any sense minimize that, but I, I'm interested to see like how Jesus earliest followers did in fact live out Jesus commands in the gospels. That's all.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a number of thoughts and I really appreciate those points. And it's really important for us to not just wrestle with sort of like the theological ramifications of our teaching, but like the, the actual explicit texts themselves. And so Nick, you're, you're pointing us in that direction. That's really good. So let me start with this claim that when we look At the early church in Acts, what we find is inter-believer generosity. And we have no indication of generosity being extended to non-believers. I think that, first of all, the parable of the Good Samaritan addresses this. I think when Jesus gives that parable, as I tried to argue earlier, he's telling us something about who we should be attending to. He's not necessarily saying anything about who takes moral priority, but he is saying that within the scope of moral concern, are people who are not part of my covenant community. And that includes my Christian church community. So I think the parable of the Good Samaritan addresses that. I would also argue that we have to be careful what we draw from the early church. And so I'm, I'm just as guilty as anyone of trying to extract principles from the other church in, an you know, in a way that lacks caution. The early church was fa- facing very novel circumstances that churches today aren't facing. Here's one the very birth of the church itself in a context, which was opposed to the gospel and opposed to the church. So I think it makes sense that people are rallying around their church communities, finding solidarity with each other and attending to the needs of those people first and foremost, because they lived in an oppressive, threatening context. We don't face those sorts of circumstances. So I think we should be careful that we don't take too much out of who we should be giving to from uh, these texts and acts. Third, I think that we got to be careful about arguments from silence. An argument from silence is where you look at a text and it doesn't say X, Y, or Z, and so you infer that Jesus didn't, you know, wouldn't have endorsed X, Y, or Z, or that the early church wasn't doing X, Y, or Z. This is a major fallacy in New Testament scholarship, um, where you know people will say, "Well, Jesus never said this, or the Bible doesn't say this, therefore we're permitted to do it, or therefore it never happened." Yeah, a good cool so, example and, of that I, is, and I think more- that. Sorry? Just a quick example. A, a good example of that is more liberal arguments
2: regarding um, the ethics of homosexual sex. For because sure. there's no text in which Jesus literally says the word homosexual. People say, well, Jesus didn't say anything, so he must be fine with it. And that's just another example of, an,
3: of a, a literal exactly argument. Right. And, I, and I think that although we don't have um, an extensive record of where the early church was giving, we shouldn't read too much out of it. I think to do so would be an argument from silence. The question is, should we expect to have records telling us that the church was extensively giving to non-believers? I don't know that we should expect that, again, because of the novel circumstances that the early church faced. And because Luke has a very particular agenda. He's trying to talk about the expansion of the gospel and the rise of the church itself. So his whole agenda is to focus on the church, the life of the church. Um, and you know. finally, I think it's true that we ought to give more to believers. Scripture clearly teaches that. But let's be clear about this. The early church was incredibly needy. I mean, again, recall that there there is next to no middle class in the ancient Palestinian world. And so the earliest believers are all peasants, basically, with a few people who are from the very thin middle class and a few who might be from you know, more upper nobility uh, classes. And so there are immense needs within the Christian community itself, immense needs, there aren't as many immense needs in contemporary American Christian communities, especially amongst more affluent churches. So although we need to prioritize the needs of our communities, we have to recall that the early church was prioritizing prior, prioritizing very extreme needs within its communities. And that's a major difference. Um, I would also add that it may be true that God blessed people with wealth in the Old Testament, such as David and Abraham. I would say though, that we again, shouldn't take that as... Um, bedrock for theological reflection on what what's permissible for us. I think I want to suggest, and this is a, a common a common sort of theological resource used by theologians. Is that often what's happening in the Old Testament is God accommodating to ancient Near Eastern practices, a, ancient Near Eastern ways of thinking, and incrementally moving them closer and closer towards the ideal, which is the kingdom of God, which is Jesus. So I want to be cautious about how I use that. But I think that when God confers wealth to people in the Old Testament, it may be because he's trying to address and do something historically that required an immense amount of wealth. I mean, God is trying to bring about the nation of Israel and establish their authority. That might require, for historical purposes, that he allowed David to have a lot of wealth. But that's a different circumstance historically than the the circumstances we're in today. So. So yeah, I mean, I don't think God is also, as far as wealth differentials, let's make a distinction between wealth disparity and immense poverty. And I don't necessarily see anything in the, in the Bible that suggests that we ought to minimize wealth inequality. Wealth inequality isn't inherently problematic on my view. There are philosophers who think it is. I, I've never heard a good argument for that. It's not so much about inequality as it's about the least well off. How, how, how um, how difficult are the circumstances of the least well off? You can imagine a group of people that are divided between middle, upper, and lower class, but the lower class are like really well off. You know, they're not hurting at all, but there still is the lower class, as opposed to a nation where the least well off are really not well off at all. And I think that God cares about the second type of scenario and about elevating those people up to a place where their shalom, their wholeness, their health is being attended to. So it's not necessarily about wealth inequality itself. I think that's all I had to say about that, <laughs> which is, I just really appreciate those. Um,
2: yeah, that, those yeah a good book on some of those is a little older now, but there's a book called Neither, Pro- Neither Poverty Nor Riches by Craig Blomberg. For those listening, and sure. that's in the, I think, New Studies in Biblical Theology series. And he talks about that concept of like, why Abraham may have been fabulously wealthy, but why that might not be great for us. And he he, he covers the, the whole of the Bible and its teaching in a theological way. It's just still very worth reading. I think it's still in
3: print. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really good.
1: So we've grappled with these questions about generosity and what Jesus demands of us. Could you guys give like a few takeaways that we can like, what are some main thoughts from this and what are some next steps for us? Even like, how Mm. should we be thinking about this and are there practical things we can do as Christians?
3: Mm. You want me to go first? Yes. Okay.
2: Do you want to, you want to hopscotch back and forth? You do one and then I'll do one.
1: Yeah, that'd be good. I like
3: that. We can do it briefly that way
1: then you can debate if you need to.
3: <laughs> I think that's such an important question and the first thing i would say is just start giving more um, yeah just i think the the, t- the takeaway is that the kingdom of god is concerned about the well-being of image bearers and there are a lot of image bearers who are suffering who are struggling and sure i've not i've not contributed to their suffering necessarily. Some, yes, but there are a lot of suffering people who I'm innocent with respect to, and nonetheless, their lives matter. And so I would just say, start start asking yourself and start praying, take this before the Lord, start praying about the courage to give more. And you might be in a financially difficult situation and you shouldn't live with guilt about not being able to give more if you're in that situation. Um, guilt isn't Yeah. Guilt doesn't have a home in the Christian heart, Mm -hmm. at least not usually, but giving more does have a home in the Christian heart and in the Christian life. So I would just encourage you to give incrementally and progressively more each year. Don't just stop at like giving 5%, 10%. The next year you get a raise or in five years, maybe reevaluate how much you're giving and say, and ask yourself, can I give just a bit more?
1: Okay. So give more, Nick.
3: Yeah, I, I think I think doing a relatively
2: systematic study of the scriptures on this can be very helpful. Um, and if you, like it says in First Thessalonians chapter 2, if you are willing to accept what God says as the word of God and not the word of men and allow God to tell you what he thinks about wealth, I think it's very helpful. And most people have never really done that. Mm-hmm. They think that God just wants you to make all you can and then give 10% and he'll bless you and give you more. And then that 10% will grow and then that's how God gets his money. And that's just not what the Bible teaches. I mean, that that, that there, there are strains of that in there, that God does love to bless generosity, and sometimes that's with wealth, and God does demand, that's all true. But I think most people have not really, in a in a considered way, read for themselves the teaching of the scriptures and grappled with them personally, mm-hmm. and then started working to order their life financially around the those teachings and so i think that would be a really good thing to do
3: yeah
1: okay so grapple with the scriptures Mm -hmm. joel do you have another one
3: yeah i would suggest giving creatively so let me just explain i there's something i started doing a little while back that i thought was a useful way of getting my heart engaged in giving and brought the brought the needs of people like kind of constantly before my mind. So this is what I started doing. I I regularly um, go to Valentia on campus to get coffee, at least when I'm on campus. Um, So shout out to Valentia. It's a great place, great service, love that place. And usually four out of of five days of the week, I'll buy a chai masala tea. What I've decided to do is on the fifth day, I get my caffeine from home. I have tea at home. Uh, It's really cheap to buy a box of tea. And I'll bring my own caffeine to campus. Okay? What 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 I do is that the money I would have used on that fifth day, the money I would have used to buy a chai masala tea, I will set that aside. And at the end of the year, I send that to a reputable charity, say the Against Malaria Foundation or the Schistosomiasis Control Initiative, charities that are extremely effective for every dollar. And so on a weekly basis, my purchasing habits are putting me in contact with the importance of giving. I'm being reminded of the fact that my my wealth is going somewhere, going somewhere that has kingdom value. so it helps motivate me, keeps my heart engaged. And you know I'm thinking about ones on the Enneagram they might ask something like, "Well why not just budget, create a budget and stay within your budget?" and then kind of orchestrate everything else around that. And I, I love that. I, I totally get that. Um, but for many people, myself included, there's something important about, I don't know, getting creative strategies integrated into your life to make the giving fun. I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of rewarding and uh, motivating.
1: Nick, do you have another one? Any last? Yeah. I I
2: think connect, I think for some personality types, Connecting Mm -hmm. the the exact sacrifice to the particular gift is there is helpful, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think another one is that one of the reasons we think that we can't give has to do with our spending and our indulgence and so on. And so this is when you start looking at this holistically, it has to do with your productivity, how much money you make. It has to do with your generosity, how much money you're willing to give. But it also has to do with your base expenses, which determine what your superfluous income is. So one of the things that Christians have to think about is what decisions have I made or will I make or can I make that will affect, right? Like what my expenses are, right? If you, if you buy more house than you need, then every month you're going to be paying like a part of your mortgage that could have, you could do something else with, but instead it's, it's buried in your house, right? Right. Totally. and so these are decisions you have to make like if you so I know some people who spent a little bit more in a house so that they could get another room so that they could invite people to stay with them and engage in the service of hospitality well right, I just I got an email this week from somebody who was like we want to have put an outbuilding on our on our our property and put a basketball court in there and use it for ministry is that part of our tithe or is that and like how do I think about that giving wise Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that people have to th- think that through and and decide. But but I think that um, the question of expenses is important, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, like if you just assume you're going to spend this much on clothes, this much on a car, this much on all- vacations, and then you're like, oh well, I've only got one percent of my income to give. Giving has to be like savings. You have That's to right. pay it first,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and then you have to figure out what you're gonna, you know, how much you what you can do lifestyle wise mm-hmm. and you know what Alex and I tried to save it early in our marriage we set our budget and if we stuck to our budget we would save X number of dollars and we very rarely saved that much money um, but when we took like the Dave Ramsey class he's like no you know you pay in your savings first and then if you don't make it you balance a check you got to do it that way or you're not going to do it all yeah. of a sudden we were saving exactly how much we budget every single month and that's always been true of our giving because we always gave our gifts first yeah. Right, And I think Christians can do that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I've got two or three more, Joel, but it's your turn.
3: Yeah, I would say just to add to what you're saying, scale back. Everyone every one of us has certain kinds of hobbies and personal projects that make our lives meaningful, which we really enjoy. And I think those are valuable. And I think God cares about those. But maybe consider how you could scale back or minimize some of your hobbies. Maybe you have like five hobbies that require financial investment. Here's a way to free up some money. Maybe pick one of those to sacrifice in the coming years. So you're not like, you're not, you're not pulling a Peter Singer and completely sacrificing all of your, your hobbies, um, but you're doing something to scale back. Or maybe you have a hobby, you have like one particular hobby that you really love. Think of ways in which you can pursue that hobby in a more financially wise way. So again, you're freeing up money to spend or to, to share, uh, to give to charity.
2: Yeah. I, th- I think one of the things Joe mentioned before is incrementalism. So instead of saying, no, the Bible says 10% as like a baseline. So if you're at five, you know, at 3% or 1%, you need to get to 10% next year. That would be great. Um, I do think you're obligated to do that. But um, usually for most people is incrementalism. Like, okay, we gave $500 last year. Let's give 750 this year. And like trying to like, push that up um, mm-hmm. oftentimes for people working incrementally like that is just more successful over time mm-hmm. um, and they resent it less and so on yeah. um, and for a lot of people they we just are so so addicted to consumerism we just we're in debt we just don't have any money and so um, so I would say that incrementalism and another one is take a financial planning class yeah mm-hmm. like Financial peace University is a great one we do it high point there's other ones. But a lot of people have just never taken a financial management class, and they, oftentimes you're wasting just thousands of dollars you don't really realize you're wasting. You, and you, if you don't track your expenses, you may not know you're spending 2000 or $5,000 a year eating out. I mean, I, I've, I've talked to younger people who, they just would go out and they just buy stuff and then they hand them their credit card and they just, they do that instead of groceries and they don't realize that it's thousands and thousands of dollars a year, you know? And yeah. once they realize it, they're like, oh my goodness, I probably shouldn't do that. So you're
1: how much you spend if you don't keep
2: track yeah Yeah, i mean just like people underestimate how much tv they watch people underestimate how much money they spend on a lot of things especially consumables eating out those kinds of things right and so tracking that is can be very helpful and really kind of change what you're doing right yeah
1: all right any last any last practical yeah, I think
2: I think when Joel said, you know, guilt is not a major motivation in the, in the working of Christian ethics. Like, it's not supposed to be your, your operative motivation. Guilt is supposed to be a warning light, not a, like, normal gauge, right? Mm-hmm. It's not your RPM meter. It's like your oil light. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Joy is supposed to be your RPM meter. It's like, if, 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 so you have to connect your giving to joy, Mm-hmm. Um, right where Jesus says, Jesus doesn't say give away your money because you shouldn't have any. He he literally says, make for yourself purses in heaven. Mm-hmm. He literally says, you know, when you invest here and buy it with generosity, you are investing, you are p- producing wealth for yourself in heaven. Now there's a way to take that too materialistically, I think. But Jesus said that. I mean, and he said it because he wanted to have like a very significant emotional freight in the people who listen. To it listen. You can have wealth here, or you can have wealth there. Okay? okay, you can either put money in your purse here, or you can give it away, and that puts money in your purse there. There, God sees and rewards and responds and cares and affects it. And so, a big part of this is like realizing that Jesus. That's the word of God, not the word of man. That is the promise of God himself that he rewards generosity. But only if you have faith. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to burn ashes, your wealth in this world, to a certain extent. You have to let it go. You have to realize that if there isn't a God in heaven, you have given away money. Maybe it's a good thing in a general sense, but it's gone. And you're never going to see that again. As opposed to believing that there is a God in heaven who rewards those who do good in his own pleasure and out of his unlimited eternal wealth. And that's supposed to bring up a joy in you that you get to be part of his generosity. You get to be part of his redemption and you get to be the servant of one who rewards those who serve him. And that's supposed to well up in you a great desire for generosity and a desire to create wealth for yourself in eternal homes. Right. And so we shouldn't shy away from the things Jesus says to motivate us. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so I think having that eternal perspective, believing that God will fulfill those promises, knowing that He makes for treasure. To heaven. Okay, let me let me just do a couple more of these. One is, you cannot neglect this.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: This is an v- extremely fundamental teaching of the Christian faith, and if you and if, and if your faith doesn't affect how you use wealth. This is one of the checks and marks on your assurance that should lead you back to the cross of Christ and back to the message of the gospel to check whether or not you've believed it. Because if believing in the gospel doesn't change the way you see money and your relationship to your fellow man, it's very likely you didn't believe the real gospel and that your faith may still be broken and not real faith yet, not saving faith yet. And it, it, may, it may need to lead you back to the cross and back to what faith really is and back to what the message of the gospel really is so that you can be saved. So this teaching about how generosity is necessary is an incredible act of love because if your faith isn't real faith, if it's self-deceived faith, one of the ways it's going to show up is it won't kill your love of money and it won't free you from the hold of materialism in this world to be truly heavenly minded. And if that isn't happening, then you're not experiencing the miracle of sanctification, which means you may not have experienced the miracle of regeneration, which means your faith may not be faith. So you need to go back to the cross and see if you really are in Christ, because it has to affect these sorts of major things. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so um, God and, and also, God doesn't just give great and incredible promises relative to generosity. He also gives very powerful warnings and related to the f- failure of the human heart in generosity, right? Also, you could say, do something because there are certain minimums that you need just in order to not have shame before the Lord. So, like in the parable of the talents, he gives 10,000 talents to be invested, 5,000 in one. And the the guy who gets condemned for not investing the one thousand talents is told you didn't even give it for interest. Like there is like a minimum thing that you have to do to show that you're even in the game trying at all. The first step of generosity is just making sure you're doing that. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Even the smallest things, but those smallest things tend to lead you to bigger things once you start thinking them and feeling your way through them. So Mm -hmm. I think that's important too. Does Mm
1: -hmm. that make sense?
2: To put it very simply, the way John Wesley taught this, and I think that this is a pretty good summary of the New Testament teaching, is make all you can. That is, don't be ashamed about making a lot of money Mm -hmm. and becoming a more productive person and getting a larger salary. So long as you don't do anything else wrong, that isn't wrong in itself, right? Then secondly, save all you can, meaning live in a relatively modest way so that you're not just wasting your money, right? And then third, give all you can. Yeah. Now, the only caveat I would give to that is that not everybody in human life can make a living through meaningful work if the only thing human beings can buy and sell are absolute necessities, right? Not everybody can buy and sell just food. Right? In order for us to have a functioning economy where people can make money and rise into something like a middle class and out of massive global poverty, people have to buy a wide diversity of things. So there's a limitation to how austere you can be. Otherwise, there's a point where your desire to give to others charitably keeps us from building something that we call economy or the free trade and exchange and building of wealth between people economically. That's a more complicated question, but... It goes to show we can't all be monks or we will all be poor as monks. And so there, there is a limit to how much austerity we should engage in. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That's a more complicated issue, but it's, yeah, it's worth definitely. thinking about some. Because if nobody, if nobody buys leather seats, then the people who produce leather can't work in that. Right? If nobody buys salmon because that's too extravagant, then nobody who fishes for salmon can sell their fish and so on. I think Jesus feels like we're pretty safe in that though, because he seems to think that so few people are really going to embrace his austere teaching about deep generosity. Then most of the world is going to be pretty materialistic. and We're not going to have a problem building economy. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if everyone was giving say their fair share, I think everyone would have to give relatively little. Um, but it's precisely because there's such great need and so little giving that the responsibility and burden becomes so much bigger, but not for that right. reason, undelightful. I mean, giving is a delightful thing. And I guess um, I'll just my final thought would be, you know, this Jesus never invites us into something that is bad for us. He lived, he lived a really good and beautiful life, and yet he did not live in luxury. Right. And right. the goodness and beauty of the life he lived is available to each of us. Mm-hmm. And part of it becomes more and more ours the more and more we lose attachment to wealth and become more and more attached to his kingdom work. Mm-hmm. Moreover, you're, you're probably not being called to sell your nice car, right? You probably need it for work. It's a wise financial investment. To stop buying chai lattes. You're not being called to stop buying chai lattes. You're not being called to never go on vacation maybe. again. There, right, maybe. There are ways in which those purchases can bring shalom to others. They can even bring shalom to you and recall, God loves you. But you probably are being called to refrain from buying that super luxurious car, that super pricey vacation, or many or multiple vacations. You probably are being called to refrain from buying that really cushy house, and so on. And when you frame these sacrifices in light of your, vo- your vocation as a creation-renewing steward, it can inspire and empower you. You're part of something. Your sacrifice is part of something. Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, I think now is a good ending point as any. <laughs> and um, the next question we are going to be talking about is gender justice. How can the church play a role in ending gender oppression? So we'll do another episode on that next. Um, and so stay tuned for that. So only Thank-
2: 60 more episodes to yeah. get through Joel's document <laughs> at this rate. We oh.
1: that we're basically writing a book in this document, yeah. but yeah that maybe Joel. as long as we're still
2: getting the downloads and people like it it's fine
1: so um yeah we will cover that question and give us your feedback thank you joel so much for talking with us again about this question thank you nick for your pastoral insight and we'll see you guys next time
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.